the diplomat. The air he breathed was filled with the acidic tailings of anti-artillery guns and a punk smell that issued from the mouths of rebel rocket launchers. On the courtyard's perimeter, eight-foot-thick fortified concrete encompassed the compound, built six months back just after the previous regime fell. Two light attack tanks with short-range missile capacity were posted at the gates, steel boxes of malice, with a select few Marines who would soon leave this place. Two women, three men, so trim in their uniforms and with such clean faces, unbearably young, he thought. They called him Government 14, or the Specialist, or the Diplomat. He liked the sound as it rolled from their mouths. The other Westerners were nearly all gone. He especially liked being called the Diplomat. He wasn't all the way down. He still kept up with events back home, but not the way others did. In his old age, he was drawn to the shadow of atrocity, seeking to understand his country's racism, to see what it might yield. Still ravenous, he thought, still so stubbornly self-embedded. In America, his America, silencing accompanied bodily harm. He couldn't escape that fact and didn't want to anymore. Misogyny laced with misandry. The old warring with orientation, intimacy, and alienation. In his own life, he'd borne both pity and shame. Not a small portion warranted, alongside that which he thought unwarranted. But in the end, when he tallied the ledger, he felt the sum of his accomplishments amounted to very little. He was stationed nowhere now, in a country of woe. In fact, until he'd met the young man, he wasn't sure if he wanted out at all. He thought he might just die here and decline. But the young foreigner, a rebirth had come. With the young foreigner, a rebirth had come. And the fortifications he'd made in his mind of despair, of his own disregard, were weaker now. Should I be given the grace, he thought, I'll leave here. I'll live again. The meeting had occurred when he walked down an alley to retrieve the car after dinner, the city then undestroyed. A chance meeting, the young man aslant in the back door of a poorly made apartment, the slight upper body, the draw of the neck to the jawline, pale yellow shirt, look of want in his eyes. As for what gave the young man confidence, the diplomat credited his own regal bearing in his blue suit, his ebony cufflinks imprinted like black tacks at his wrists, his red tie emblazoned with gold. The boy stared into the diplomat's face. Do you need money? The diplomat asked. No, he answered. What then? Guns, the young man said. Safety. He looked at the young man's arms. The boy leaned closer. He assured himself this was only the economies of man to man, but he let himself gaze into the boy's eyes, dark and open discs, and when the boy reached and placed a hand on his, he thought suddenly of fires that consumed the body whole. A feeling entered him like the dislodge of earth that precedes a landslide. Please help, the boy said. Help us. They killed my mother, my father, my sisters. He could not have been 18 years old. The diplomat released him. A moisture to the skin, he thought, like the leaves outside the office window at the embassy, lush and inviting. In the stairwell, another man appeared, slightly older, backlit, and standing as if lost, shirtless, a chest and face that captured light and shone like something otherworldly. Are you in danger, the diplomat asked. From a light bulb on the near wall, shadows made angles of their faces. We are not like them, the boy motioned with his chin toward the city. They hurt us. They want us dead. His eyes looked hollow. The boy motioned to the older one behind him. Us, he said. The first boy took a step forward. They tied my father to a post. He looked over the diplomat's shoulder. The diplomat wavered. If it was just the young one, perhaps, without the other. He reminded himself he had come to this country to avoid entanglement. He took out his wallet and placed money in the boy's hand. The boy took it and reached, clutching the hem of the diplomat's suit coat. Stay, the boy said. We'll cook poulette bicyclette. Or you want mafe? Or kejinu? 
We'll cook for you. The boy looked back again, his lips straight at the the boy looked back again, his lips straight as the edge of an envelope. He waved the diplomat in, but the diplomat stepped away. He disliked Mafe. He loved bicyclette and the spicy stew of Kejinu. Anything with guinea fowl, anything without peanuts. I'll come find you, the diplomat said. Or I won't, he thought. But driving, he watched the rearview mirror, the boy's face a blown fuse. A month passed, then two. The fighting intensified in the north. He wanted to keep an eye on the boy. He started visiting the area of the apartment on official business. Nearly always he saw nothing. Twice, though, he witnessed the boy from a distance, and each time he felt hard-chested, as if hit by something that would level him to the ground. But as the days drew on, he saw the boy only once more, a fleeting glimpse of the pale yellow polo as the boy rounded a corner. A year from the first meeting, the diplomat still thought of him. From his office window, he stared through the branches of the great olive tree. He made out the barricade erected against the front gate beyond the tanks. The sun, incandescent at the edge of the world, appeared to weep in the smoke that lingered toward evening. Like small candles, fires burned in the far reaches of the city. Next to the window, a map of the continent covered one wall, the outline rugged, the surface various shades of brown for each country, the boundary lines old and redrawn in red ink to chart the new world. The land mass in the shape of a prehistoric axe, he thought, huge, malformed. The country he knew now was the southern cut of the blade, bloody Liberia to the west, and to the east Ghana, Togo, Benin. Nigeria as big as an ox. Throughout, the violent kiss of Islam and Christianity. The largest stretch of the handle held Cameroon, the Congo, Angola, and Namibia. All the way to the bottom of the hilt where South Africa stood freighted with a legacy of vengeance and atonement. The millions of deaths from the Cape to the curve of the country were unfathomable. This country, his own Thermopylae. The people need me, he thought. No, he countered, they don't need me at all. He'd selected the post some years back when the country appeared calm, his first choice, a site of ease and relative comfort for the years before retirement. But when the embassy was moved from upcountry to the south, he could only nod his assent. The U.S. diplomatic corps chose a pillared two-story French colonial with acutely peaked gables. The building stood a mile south of the city center, in a clutch of upper-middle-class housing that bled to poverty a few streets further on. The war had followed him here. Now his office was nestled into the second floor of a small beleaguered fortress. Spanish military airplanes had evacuated foreign civilians from Admiral H. Airport, and French expats had needed to be lifted from the roofs of their houses to escape the mobs. Until recently, he and the rest of the Americans were largely ignored. Then the worst of it came, the soldiers taking him to identify the body of a male co-worker whose name he barely knew but whose face he recognized. The head was decapitated and set beside the body. Open eyes, dirty teeth. The boy had been dragged through the streets, the wound at the neckline something unforeseen and terrible. He'd retched, soiling his shirt before the soldiers led him back to the tank and returned him to the embassy. After witnessing the body, he knew he needed to act. By agreement with rebel forces, he'd arranged a UN escort and seen the last staff member off at the depot ten miles beyond the northern edge of the city. His hands wouldn't stop shaking when he stood watching the narrow cars shift west around one broad corner out into an open field. The train monolithic with its layered spine that hinged and absorbed the turn and carried the vessel onward. He felt afraid for himself. He focused his line of vision on the blue hats of the UN soldiers. Beyond them, he saw the severe face of his assistant, Marie from Oklahoma, framed by a thin glass window over steel wheels on black rails, a stench of tarred wood and oil. She had not imagined this, he thought, her body, her person abhorred in the heart of the continent. In the last days, her fear had gained total control, her face creased to a new depth. He watched the tight brown bowl of her hair disappear north. He needed to help himself now, but his impotence burdened him. 
Even before the beheading, almost everyone accused him of irreversible failures. His wife, who divorced him long ago, girlfriends, boyfriends, his own children. And now in this place, as in every place previous, those who worked for him respected him little and uttered the same tired message. He does nothing. He's inept. And it was true. He'd proved himself incapable of generating the international goodwill the position demanded. The reputation of his own country's bully government had not helped. The work was intractable. Still, his charges were safe now, weren't they? He pictured them on the train, their nervous laughter, an exhalation in the shoulders as they crossed the border. Your body still breathing is not nothing, he thought. He stared now out the window over his desk, out far the city burned. He would need to be on the next UN helicopter. I won't make it out alive, he thought. In the country below, a white flamingo stood on one leg between the two light attack tanks. The Marine soldiers were seated bold-faced atop the tanks, a faint strain of anxiety in the lean of their bodies. The bird's wings opened for a moment before the creature craned its neck, coiled inward, and tucked a black-tipped beak between the body and the fold of a wing. The head of the bird utterly serene. In the distance, great fires. The next day, the diplomat did the unthinkable. He ran to the front gate and scrambled over the barricade. The soldiers shouted at him, but he disappeared into the labyrinth of streets and ran for some minutes before he slipped behind a brick wall. He wore dark clothing and a hooded top, a black bandana over his mouth and chin. His breath came heavy. He ran again until he saw the basilica on his right, the white-domed cathedral with a high-columned portico and breezeways that armed outward from the central edifice. Our Lady of Hope, a miracle of marble carved from the jungle. City of excess, veined with abject need. Depravity and sacredness, he told himself, and looked at the backs of his hands. He walked at a brisk pace, the high bulb of the radio beacon, and thought of the people and their faith. Their enigmatic evidence of things unseen. He passed the square towers of the mosque where gold domes painted arabesques on the sky and made his way north along the water where he searched near the restaurant. He went to the alley and found nothing. Night fell. He wandered and finally walked back to the water down to the lagoon that encased the city center and underlined a cityscape that was a low progression of greater and lesser buildings. The city was built solely for the legacy of Admiral H., built by Admiral H. himself. From above, the water opened like the mouth of a lion. The lagoon's wide jaws, the northern end of a U-shaped passage that was the final stop before the living arrangements grew impoverished again and the city became a township dense with tin. Called the Meadow of the Old World, Admiral H. had built a wildlife enclosure on the banks of the lagoon, where the only wildlife left were a tribe of olive baboons whose gray-green faces held elongated jaws and housed tall, fearsome teeth. Also called Anubis baboons, after the Egyptian dog-faced god, their shoulders were like cannonballs, their muscled torsos and long arms hunched over hardened haunches. They set their fists like mallets on the ground. All was quiet now. A great while, the diplomat watched the water and searched the banks. He wondered how many animals moved in the dark below. He decided finally to return to the embassy, but as he moved a short distance off into the streets, he heard an uproar, and when he rounded a sharp corner, he encountered people rushing forward. Their chaotic feet stomped the ground as they ran, pretending nonchalance he entered the flow. He thought with strain of his pale face and hands, his neck like a column of alabaster. He shrouded himself in his hood and tucked his hands under his arms. Yelling issued from makeshift bullhorns, slogans of venom and death on the air. The bright darkness of faces and rough lines of bodies bobbing and tilting. He took a diagonal through the crowd, but a few steps in, he was cross-grained and immovable. Keeping his head down, he tried to shoulder himself forward, but the crowd tightened. The people toted wooden clubs, shafts of pipe, belts, bottles. The weapons were primitive, the violence ancient. And as he pulled his hood fully over his face, he lost balance and fell. He felt a tremendous blow to the stomach from a blunt object, a knee perhaps, or the head of a baseball bat. The crowd trampled him in the dark. He lost breath and for a moment consciousness. 
When the night appeared again above him, the crowd was gone. A dog with the face of a jackal approached tentatively and licked his face. The mob had passed north into the city. He limped away in the darkness south. At the gate, he shouted warning and made his way again over the barricade. A black sergeant from Florida, one of the Marines, shone a bright light on him, eyed him sideways and shook his head. Dumb as hell, the sergeant muttered. The diplomat held his side as he entered the front door. Limping, he ascended the stairs and crossed the threshold into his office where he stood and gazed out the window at the outline of the great tree before he sat down at his desk, leaned back in the wooden swivel chair, and closed his eyes. His life had been about infrastructure, Ecuador first and El Salvador, and now thirty years on the dark continent, the bad years in the Midlands, stints in the west, the east during peace and far north where a stone's throw over water, the Middle East shouted in uproar. He'd done little, he reminded himself, but since he met the young man, his view of the future had changed. Whenever he thought of the boy, the collarbones and eyes, the voice filled of what the diplomat took to be affection, everything spoke to him of what he'd not known for a great while, what he in fact diminished or denied, perhaps destroyed. He put his face in his hands. The words returned to him in his ex-wife's voice. You wrecked this family. The diplomat had two kids, a girl he'd never attended to, and a boy he tried to forget. And there was his ex, alive somewhere, hating him with a deadly hatred. And why not, he admitted. He'd burned every bridge. His family had been religious. For a time in his first year at Georgetown, he thought he might become a Jesuit. He didn't know what he was now. Twenty years ago, it came like a flood, her discovery of his women and men and porn and massage parlors and whores. She released him like dead weight. On furlough, they'd taken the ferry north from Prince Rupert to Alaska, where she and the kids would stay with her parents. On the point above the old World War II gun batteries in Sitka, the ocean stone gray to the horizon, she told him she'd be happy when he was dead. Her face an anvil in the dark, she took everything, including his coal black lab, Foucault. He no longer felt anything about it. His life, he thought, was one of deep and abiding failures. He told himself not to go out again. Did he want to die? Strangely, he thought he wanted to live now. But the city had fulminated to an ungodly harvest. And where was the boy? The boy had begged him, help me, help us. The diplomat imagined the mob hovering like predators over the boy. The strong devour the weak. An unending pendulum of gouged eyes and duct-taped mouths. Torn bodies and machete-hacked limbs. Hangings. Blame it on the French, he thought, or the people themselves. He considered his own hypocrisy. The blood mark of America could never be removed. Her decadence, her privilege and dominance, how she worshipped her white skin. Closer still, his children had been completely unearthed by him, torn out by the roots. He wanted to explain to them all this wasn't who he was. He was something more than what they named. He folded his arms and put his head down on the desk. He breathed slowly in and out. The writings of Carl Jung came to him from readings early in his career when he devoted himself solely to the man's work. His days had felt full then, nearly infinite, and at the same time infinitesimal. The less embodied the shadow, the darker and denser it is. The less spoken, he thought. The American machine, hyper-capitalist supremacist, could not speak of its own shadow, but in archaic half-truths that meant erasure. Being gay, he too had been erased by it, and yet I am part and parcel, he thought, born aloft by history. His pale skin and opaque eyes, he didn't know what to do with the knowledge. In white America, the shadow was disembodied, existing ever more dark, more dense. Women hating and contempt for men, he thought, man-hating and the degradation of women. He was progenitor of the hatred to come, both its heir and conduit. Men eroticized hatred not only for women, but also for Lacey's, the butch, the femme, the bottom. Yet he wanted communion, abandoned in the body of another. He'd followed the outlets that spoke of white-sponsored terror in the U.S. and what to do in the aftermath, of which no one seemed to have an answer. Charleston, Jacksonville, Beaver Creek, Ferguson, Sanford, 
Staten Island, L.A., Rodney King, Eric Gardner, Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown, John Crawford, Jordan Russell Davis, the beautiful Reverend, the beautiful Reverend Honorable Clementa Pinckney, and beloved Mother Emanuel. Back through all existence, a white line of torture, slavery, rape, lynching, murder. Whole families hung from the Mississippi Bridge as late as the 1950s. Being born in Montana when he applied for the diplomatic corps, he'd researched the atrocities against the Blackfeet on the morass. The Nez Perce at the Big Hole and the massacre at Sand Creek where U.S. Cavalry dismembered Cheyenne elders, women, and children parading the body parts on the Apollo stage in Denver, the pubic scalps of women, human fetuses. Whenever he reckoned America, he was blind. Raising his head, he saw the inferno. It had spread now over the city, metastasizing from a global but localized wound. He was a strangely disembodied instrument, the specialist, the diplomat. Black and white, every color, light to dark, we can't move on, he thought. We won't be allowed to. For who can atone? On the hand of violence, a velvet glove. Mercy, my sister, and reparations, her brother. He'd been reading Claudia Rankine and recognized her stern face and mournful eyes, her voice as if singing to him, Citizen, a measure of all memory is breath. To breathe, you have to create. Create dangerously, he thought, as Camus created. Pushing thumb and forefinger to the wound, he held his side, grimacing. Through connections at three embassies, he'd bribed and falsified in order to find a route through Morocco to Spain, to Great Britain, and finally D.C. He'd succeeded in gaining two births, and now, when he stared at the paper set before him on the desk, the boy's image came to him as destiny. A U.N. helicopter would be too obvious. The boy would accompany him by train. Discretion in the heart of diplomacy, he would take the boy in secret. He folded the papers in a white business envelope and locked them in his desk. The next day, he entered the city again, heavy fighting in the southwest. From the back porch, he crossed the grass and climbed the embassy wall with a rope he looped over one of the metal stanchions. From the corner of the house, the sergeant stood watching. The diplomat ignored him. At the top, the diplomat flipped the rope free and traversed the eight-foot-wide surface and made his descent on the other side. He hid the rope in the brush and moved into the streets where he walked fast. Was the boy bruised? Was he dead? The air stunk of smoke and oil, gasoline, and the heat of unnatural fires. Technicals and roving trucks, open-backed and filled with rebel soldiers, roamed the streets. He hid in alcoves and entryways, pressed his face to windows, and peered in. He tried to calm his breathing. The drone of the vehicles receded. He entered the city center and came again to the alley. He found the door of the building structurally unsound now with sections of roof torn away and open caverns on the second floor. He knocked. No one answered. He knelt and placed his hands on the door. He rose and walked a block further on. There is nothing for me now, he thought. Like a vagrant, he lay down then where the dirt of the street met the crumbled archway of what had been a stone house. He never knew his father, a scientist, an engineer at Los Alamos. His mother was made of needles. Below belief, intimacy, he thought. Below severity, fear. He lay still and stared out for what seemed to him a very long time. Returning to the embassy after sundown, he secured the rope and climbed and lay on his back atop the wall. His limbs felt heavy. He stared at the night overhead, a blackness dense and starless, and the thought of the succulence of the lower Karoo Desert at the southern tip of the continent, plants obscure and hardly visible until the rains came and they blazed to life. Red and yellow blooms open-mouthed like a shout. When they died, they were quick to die. A sweet aroma remained. Atop the wall, the scent came to him, airy and high like good Riesling. In his weariness, his eyes stung. Our ideologies bleed us, he thought. He admitted here in this country of famine with the city's infrastructure pounded to oblivion. His thoughts were not for his own survival, though he still held some little hope. What did the French say? Sans ego, complete abandon, he thought. Oceans and continents from any semblance of family. A simple fact came to his awareness. 
Love is not lonely. Love, the reality to which he'd always been wed in the ache of his own self-imposed unreality. The word appeared to him now as if written in fire. He rose, descended the wall, and returned to his office. In the morning he woke on the office floor, silence over the land from sunup to mid-morning. He lay on his side, and when he heard the roar of attack planes strafing the city, the whine of bombs dropped from the sky, still he didn't move. He stared sideways at the room and noticed a decanter of $500 cognac on the glass surface atop a gray elephant's foot. Five lead crystal tumblers. The rest of the liquor would be wasted. He rose to his knees, filled the tumblers, and sat on the floor with his back to the wall. He took the first glass to his lips and threw it back, the liquid like a hot coal in his throat. He set the glass on the floor beside him and took the second glass and tipped it back in a leisurely way, the burn less pronounced, as if he'd swallowed a thorn. He put the empty glass on the floor beside the first and sat still and rested his hands on his thighs. He recalled the words of his wife at night early in the marriage when he'd woke to find her quietly weeping next to him. What is it, he'd asked. Her answer upended him. I am afraid to own a body, she said. I am afraid to own a soul. He had held her then till she slept. Now his heart felt weary. When he first came to the city, they led him to the palace of the admiral, where he stood in a crowd of tourists and witnessed live chickens fed to the baboons, a racket of wing and panic. The snap of jaws followed by the crunch of bone, spattered blood, a push of adrenaline. With their hands, the baboons tore the birds open. He'd been more enthralled than he wanted to admit. He thought of the boy now and his mind tipped over. He tilted his head against the wall and pressed the heels of his hands to the corners of his eyes. He wanted to consume. He wanted to be consumed. What could be wrong with desire? The boy would want for nothing. He downed another glass and his eyes swam, no blade to the liquor any longer, just a bend that moved him lower down the wall so he rested his chin on his chest and he seemed to watch his thoughts swirl and break apart. The boy would leave his lover. For the boy's own safety, the older one would let him leave. The diplomat double-fisted the last two glasses and when his head went hard, he heard the bump and bounce of the tumblers on the floor. His body tipped over and he felt a sharp tap on the upper left side of his skull. Day cycled to night and when the sun shone again, he woke to, pronounced throb at the, to a pronounced throb at the corner of his forehead. He touched at the upraised button of skin there. The bone felt bruised. He sat up and went to the bathroom where he washed his face and smoothed his hair. The wound at his hairline looked angry. He took a shower and changed his clothes. He went to his desk and held one hand to his side, the other to his head. He perused the list he'd made, meaningless now in the state of things, but a comfort to him. Water, money, passport, evacuation orders. A great booming in the West was closer now. His insides ached. He had not thought of the dread of death in quite this way before. No train. He would forgo the boy. He needed to make the phone call for an escort by helicopter east and then north skirting Burkina Faso. A car ride from there to Morocco. A long ride. He lifted the receiver and listened to the dial tone. Dispatch expects me, he thought. He looked over the courtyard. The soldiers were gone. He hung up the phone. He walked out the front door and over the barricade into the city where he pretended he was sane, though the streets were filled with riot and there was great danger in wearing what he wore. The suit and tie. His own skin. Now his death would be terrible, he thought. He walked, and his inner thighs began to rub and his heart palpitated. He had forgotten to powder his legs. The envelope was in the inner chest pocket of his suit, concealing money wrapped in wax paper, and further wrapped in the two documents he'd obtained. The signature was there, yes, but more crucial was the signature of the region chief, whose demarcation covered the entire span of the continent from here to North Africa. He passed over and down to where the baboons fed, and in the light of dusk he saw the aftermath of the feedings, a track of blood and feathers and a wine-colored swath from the landing to the stairs of the palace. 
From there he turned and crossed back into the city's core where he walked the road to the restaurant and through the alley. Again the boy was nowhere to be found and the diplomat's heart dropped and he said aloud, never mind. Turning, he entered an empty jewelry store, a place half collapsed and badly burned. He felt forsaken, but when he turned again, the boy appeared in the door jam of the building across the street. The diplomat faced him directly. The young man seemed unfamiliar, his blank face touched with more disaffection than the diplomat remembered. Then the boy's eyes softened, sleek head and sleek body. He wanted to hold him to his chest and watch the boy fall asleep under words of kindness and protection. I fade, but he remains, the diplomat thought. The boy nodded. The diplomat remained still, watching the boy's aquiline nose, the lips and narrow face, the cheekbones, and infinitely the eyes. He is two-third world, he told himself, pins for legs, eyes more yellow than white, a concave torso like a cavity in the earth. Why am I here, he wondered. The old questions of border and boundary. Who are you? Where are you going? What do you have to declare? He stepped forward, crossed the street, and touched the boy's shoulder. Romantically, the diplomat thought love is the vessel we ferry between us. He opened his suit coat and moved his lips, but no words came. The boy stared for a moment, then rotated slightly and looked over his shoulder into the stairwell. Do you need my help? The diplomat asked. Facing the diplomat again, the boy drew a pistol from the small of his back and pointed it at the diplomat's, fa at the diplomat's face. Shut your mouth, the boy said. The diplomat felt split in two. The boy stepped forward, touching the gun to the top of the diplomat's head. The diplomat rocked on his heels. Be still, the boy said. Put your head down. He searched the diplomat's coat pockets and found the envelope, a pen, and a single key. He took the diplomat's watch. Coat, shirt, tie, undershirt, the boy said. The diplomat removed each article. Shoes, the boy commanded. Socks. The diplomat slipped off his shoes and bent over and removed his socks. Would you leave me without dignity, he asked. Head down, the boy shouted. Pants, too. The boy stepped back and waved the gun in the air. Trembling, the diplomat heard snickering from the hallway behind the boy. Go, the boy shouted, but the diplomat didn't move. His large, pale body dwarfed the boy. His pants lay crumpled at his feet. Leave, the boy shouted again, pointing the gun at the diplomat's face. The diplomat's face quavered. My place is here, with you, he said. The boy kicked the diplomat's pants aside and came closer, raising the gun to the side of the diplomat's left ear. When he fired beyond him, a gigantic clap sounded, and the diplomat recoiled. His head rang, a blaring hollow in his ears, followed by a piercing wail. He fell to the ground and scrambled on all fours, bruising his ankles and knees, the heels of his hands. He smelled gunpowder and clutched at his ear where blood filled the well. He made it to the corner of the nearest building. The boy raised the weapon and fired again. The diplomat scrambled, rose, and ran shirtless with no pants through the city. When he reached the vicinity of the embassy, he crouched behind a stone wall to gather his breath. On his knees, he leaned his shoulder into the wall and pressed his hands to his lips. They moved then in their opposite directions. The boy traversed the city north with his companion. The diplomat went back to the embassy where he slowly dressed himself again, clean white shirt and gray slacks, blue suit coat and red tie. He stood barefoot in his office and looked out to a thick line of smoke on the horizon. The pads of his feet were damaged. He lifted the receiver to his good ear. The line was dead. The tanks were gone. A plane flew overhead and a concussive force met the air followed by a deafening explosion that shook the foundations of the building and shed dust from the ceiling beams. In the near distance, a burgeoning of light and hoary smoke fired the sky, the brilliance hungry as it engulfed brush and buildings, house and fence and vine. Placing his hands wide on the window, he watched the tree before him flare to an immutable bloom. The light leapt up and set the peaked gables aglow. The glass became nearly unbearable, but the diplomat held fast, witnessing a desolation magnificent and irrevocable. 
On the wide plain beyond the city, the white flamingos with black beaks turned their heads upward and lifted, nosing north in an udulant swirl that pushed at the night until the birds appeared as a single raft in the sky. A murmur of wings, dark and opalescent, filled the earth with longing, and over all a blackness as of the advent of creation hovered until at last the travelers made out the stars that wheeled overhead like a silver river, hearkening them on.